I'm talking to you this morning about principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. I'm talking to you about spiritual wickedness in high places. I'm talking to you about the serpent who spoke to our first parents and plunged the world into sin and death. I'm talking to you about the devil who was unafraid of full frontal attack on the Son of God. I'm telling you that this little Christian boy and this little Christian girl are threatened with the gates of hell. And I want to explore his devices. And I have done this in the past, and I was confronted with the most serious and dangerous providences. For example, I went to Swansea to a church, and I gave them five sessions, two in the morning, two in the afternoon, and one in the evening on the book of Revelation. I took them through the whole book and showed them how the lamb won, and the devil was cast into the lake of fire. And I drove home through the Welsh hills and I fell asleep at the wheel. And the car went off the road and the guardrail prevented me going into a ravine and I totaled the car, but no one was hurt. I was alone in the car, I was hurt. A man followed me and he said to me, have you been drinking? And how could I say to him, ah, isn't the God of this world? And I've antagonized him. And he has attacked me, but God has said, so far, but no further. And I said to friends, I'm speaking on this at the conference, and pray for me, pray for me, that God will protect me. I expected something afterwards, but before, well, I've had, I've had great weakness, and I'm a fit man. I've had intestinal problems. I've had laryngitis. I don't think the evil one wants me to talk to you about his devices. I want to really lay it on you. There are mature pastors who from their experience of the evil one dealing with them and by their knowledge of the word of God, they have enriched us in understanding. We um, modern day Puritans, we have tended to absolutize the flesh about remaining sin and to concentrate on that and then on the world and all its allure and temptation, and we discounted largely the activities of the evil one. But there were preachers in the 17th century, and not in just what they heard, but what they experienced themselves, the fiery darts, and they knew about Lucifer, and they've extrapolated Satan's devices, and they've laid them bare and the divine remedies for our benefit. None did so well as Thomas Brooks, his precious remedies against Satan's devices. Several of you have told me this is your favorite Puritan book. He was born 414 years ago, and he shared his observations on the devices of Satan in his first book. He was 44 years old of age, precious remedies against Satan's devices. His wife, his first wife died shortly after he'd written it and he married again a younger woman and she became Patience Brooks. What a delightful name. And for the next 28 years, he wrote many more most helpful books and uh, the Banner of Truth have brought them out in six volumes And so I want to consider a number of Satan's 
devices to tempt us to sin and the counsels he gives. Firstly, I want to speak about Satan's approach to our sin and repentance and providence. And secondly, I want to speak about Satan's approach to a daily Christian living and praying. And thirdly, I want to speak about how Satan attacks our theological convictions. So that's where we're going together. So firstly, his approach to our sin and repentance and providences. About sin, he comes and he puts sin in the brightest light. He presents the bait and he hides the hook. He would persuade us to believe our sins, my sins are not like other men's. My sins are beautiful. And so he paints sin with the color of virtue. And he encourages to believe that our sins are slight. The devil nods in approval when, when you say, well, we're trying to live a good life. And we, we're always doing our best. God can ask nothing more from us than that we do our best. But men and women, you know our best is not good enough for God. When the prophets came and the apostles and Jesus Christ, their message to the world wasn't, well, do your best. They actually said that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In the sight of a God who is light, in whom is no darkness at all. With every imagination of the thoughts of our hearts, being only evil continually, there's no other way to be blessed by God than through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. He alone takes away the sin of the world. Should my zeal no respite, no, should my tears forever flows, if I cried for a year, if I wept for 10 years, if I broke my heart and wept for a hundred years, if I filled a bath with my tears and lay down in that tear-filled bath, all for sin could not atone, thou must save. And Satan's devices then include drawing our attention to the sins of well-known brethren. He hides the secret prayer life of other preachers. He hides their repentance, their godly grief, their mortification of remaining sin. He hides their virtues, but he makes sure that we hear that pastor so-and-so has fallen. Satan presents God to us as exclusive mercy, simply the one who forgives, that this is God's sole job. And Satan reminds us that some well-known and blessed pastors have shamefully fallen, but they've written excellent books, he says. Their children believe in Jesus. Many people have professed faith under their ministries. They have good length, good health, long life, and they receive many outward mercies. So that sin is, is not, a, not a big deal. The devil will show us then the struggles of godly preachers, the divisions in their churches, their small congregations, the problems with their health that they've suffered, the sorrows they've had to endure, the waywardness of some of their children. Satan parades before us some earnest godly men who've lacked success in the world's estimation. They've had little numerical growth. Those are some of Satan's devices to lessen our commitment to faithfully following the Lord. Then he also encourages us to compare ourselves with men that are worse than ourselves so that we can give ourselves a pat on the back and think we're not doing so badly and being blessed by God because, uh, well, we, we're not like so many bad people. He draws our attention to the promises of flashy, contemporary purveyors of false teaching who promote 
success and growth and influence and wealth. And he encourages us, well, find out about them. Embrace, well, not of course their extremes, but take on board some of their methodology. And we start to ape them and use their tinsel cliches. Satan gives us an itch and an ache for the prosperity that comes from the world, taking the values of a godless world, copying the world, but sticking on their productions a Bible verse. We become amused at what the world finds amusing. We drink what the world drinks. We dress as the world dresses. We send our money, spend our money on the things the world spends its money on. We watch the programs and we listen to the music the world loves and we start to live and gently and persuasively Satan persuades us to live like the rest of sin-maddened people and live just for today. He seeks to persuade us that it's really impossible to live a holy life, that being perfect is not what is required but being a plodder. Oh, well, it's, it is being a plodder. Thank God for plodders. But a plodder who seeks to love God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. There's no, no room in our hearts, no place in our lives that has a no-entry sign that keeps God's presence out so far and no further. The Christian plodder loves his neighbor as he loves himself. And so those are some of the things that Satan encourages us to think and behave with regard to sin. And then about repentance, Satan says, Well, you can always repent afterwards. Nobody's looking. Nobody's getting hurt. It's secret. Go ahead. You can always repent. And Thomas Brooks says, in answer to that device, repentance is one of the most difficult things in all the world. True repentance is a gift of God. It is the accomplishment of the energy that made the cosmos. It needs the power that raised Christ from the dead to experience evangelical repentance. It's as easy for a Christian to make the heavens and the earth as all by himself to show gospel repentance. To become a repentant person is is not a simple achievement. When you've sowed your wild oats for years, it's going to be utterly impossible for your flesh by itself to suddenly change and say, well, from now on, I'm going to love holiness. I'm going to love Christ. I'm going to repent of my sins, and I'm going to follow Jesus after, after. You need an earthquake in your life to do that. You need a new birth to be made a new creation. All things must become new if you're going to show true repentance and trust in God. If you think you're going to wait until you're a mature man and, you've, and you'll have your fun... And then you'll bring some religious precepts to bear on your life again. You are thinking of setting out on a course of evil. And that grieves and that quenches the Spirit of God. You're deliberately saying, I want to taste the forbidden fruit. But that's okay because later on I will repent. And that swap is as easy as exchanging your own heart of stone for a heart of flesh or going to the graveyard and raising the dead. 
Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can the leper change his spots? Real repentance is solely within the prerogative of Almighty God. To give it or not give it. Acts 5.31 Christ has God exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Again, Paul tells Timothy, in meekness, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will give them repentance so that they may know the truth, 2 Timothy 2.25. Gospel repentance doesn't come automatically with the repetitive chanting of God be merciful unto us, God be merciful unto me, that's sloganism. It is not within man's power to repent at leisure. You know you will be a loser if you've bought a counterfeit grandstand ticket for a World Series game when you come to show it at the turnstiles and the steward refuses your admission. It's a dud, he says. It's a phony. You're a loser. And never think you can pick up evangelical repentance later. And that is as simple as picking up a pencil that's fallen to the ground. It's a satanic device. Never rest in your own show of repentance. It might only be a shadow. A Puritan said, repentance has damned more than sin has damned. Real repentance is a 180 degree turn from a love of sinning to a love of God. That's what it is, change about. Repentance is the turning of the whole man. It's not simply reading a sinner's prayer, expressing a word of sorrow for one, one throbbing memory. Wash you, make you clean. Do you think that repentance is some easy action that you, you can click your fingers and it will come to you? That you can switch it on at will? True repentance includes a sense of how cruelly mischievous sin is. A repentant person looks at what actions he thought were beautiful and he looks in a new light. Real repentance involves a loathing of your heart. It includes the despising of ourselves that we could ever think that you could justify hurting people. It includes a cry, oh wretched man that I am, the evil I hate I did and the good I would do I didn't do. We're exasperated with ourselves. True repentance strips us stark naked of all the garments of old Adam. It leaves us without as much as a t-shirt. Then, thirdly, about providence, Satan encourages us to misread God's providential dealings with us. I'm talking about the muddles that so often we meet in our lives. Look what's happened to you, Satan says. He draws attention to illnesses and unemployment and cancer and a child with learning difficulties. You discover you and your spouse can't have children. You think of accidents and losses and crosses and tears. And you're a a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Surely Satan says to you, if, if God existed, if God loved you, if he delighted in you, he wouldn't let you be 
happen, these things to happen to you. Thomas Brooks makes one of those pithy statements, characteristic of the Puritans, you know, that Spurgeon gathered together all these beautiful aphorisms of, of Brooks and he brought them together in a book and he call, called it um, Smooth Stones from Ancient Brooks. And he says then, one of those sayings is, the hand of God may be against a man when the love and heart of God are set upon him. That God can chastise strongly those he loves very dearly. And he brings evidences to this. Thomas Brooks brings Job, the hand of God, very much against him, the heart of God set upon Job. Joseph, sold in a far country as a slave, put in a stinking prison. But all that wonderfully advanced him. And he served the cause of God and truth and redemption and the coming of the Messiah. And the very means his enemies used to destroy Joseph are the things God used to promote Joseph. He was sold by his brothers that he might not be worshipped by his father. Yet he was adored by millions, all because he had been sold into slavery. So every strange muddle, every dark providence that comes into our lives, God has put it under an obligation that it helps us towards heaven. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. It is divine wisdom, it is divine love that is ordering everything that happens to us. The waters lifted Noah's ark nearer heaven. The stones that struck Stephen knocked him nearer to Christ. And so it is with us. Don't listen to Satan's devices when troubles assail and dangers affright. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Flame shall not hurt thee. It's only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So that is uh, Brooks' way of answering Satan's devices concerning sin and repentance and providence. Secondly, Satan's devices toward the daily life of the Christian about our praying. Satan says, you know, you're always asking God to forgive you for the same sins. You confess to him, same sins, day after day, month after month. You say you're saved and, and these sins, again and again you're confessing. Come on, Lucifer. Do you imagine that in the future there are going to be staggering new sins that we're going to be confessing? That we are counterfeiting $100 bills? That we're in a plot to assassinate a public figure? That we are being tempted to cannibalism? That we're planning to rob Fort Knox? Of course not. Of course not. It's the same. It's the same sins that you confessed last year and this year and will go on to the feet of Jesus. We confess our prayerlessness, our lack of love for God, the way we hurt the people who love us the most by sharp words. by our impatience, our irritability, 
We're constantly confessing things like our foul imaginations. If you could see some of my imaginations, you'd spit in my face. Our vanity, our ego, our lack of tenderness, our resentments hoarded, our cowardness in witnessing, our ignorance of the word of God, our poor preaching, wearying a congregation. Oh, it goes on. We confess them over and over and over again. No, we'll never, never ever cease those humbling prayers. We're relapsing again. Ah, the good that we would do. Ah, we're not doing it. More love for thee, we sigh. More love for thee, Lord. It is my chief complaint that my love is so weak and faint. But Satan says our hearts are not right with God. Because of this, we are flattering ourselves with a false assurance that we are Christians. You complain about sin and you preach against sin, Lucifer says. And yet time again, you're falling into the same sins. You can't be a real believer. Now, there are sinful addictions. There are evil patterns of life that have to be addressed. Some Christians have a huge struggle with such sins. They so easily defeat them. And then you, you, you must seek help from a friend, your best friend, and address him and say, please, please pray with me now. Let me share with you you avoid the cesspit of the world wide web. You make certain sites impossible for you to reach on your computer. You avoid the old shops and the hangouts of liquor and drugs and promiscuity. You don't be alone with a member of the opposite sex. You cry mightily to God for mercy and deliverance. If you have some office in the church, while you are a slave to some big sins. You need to think. You need to question whether you can do those two things. Trapped into big sinning. And yet being an officer in the body of Christ. Thomas Brooks makes a wise distinction. He says, there are relapses into enormities and there are relapses into infirmities. He makes that necessary distinction. Every Christian has regular lapses into infirmities, into ego into impatience, into the lust of the mind and the lust of the flesh, but not into enormities. In other words, Abram did not become a serial liar and put his wife in danger month after month. Lot didn't become a drunkard. David didn't take many men's wives and have their husbands killed. Peter didn't spend a life of denying his Lord. God preserved them from that. He preserves us from enormities. Yet God, with his own concern for our souls, does permit the humiliation of our falling into those familiar infirmities, such as lukewarm hearts, prayerlessness. If you want to humble any of the speakers during these days, you just ask them about their prayer life. That is the Christian burden in this groaning world of ours. But it's not our damnation. Walk quietly to heaven. You cannot continue in enormities 
and at the same time be fervent in your duty, ready to answer people for the hope that's in you, often meeting with your Savior, anticipating that. What wonderful company who would be absent from such a mercy seat. The assurance of the Father's love. You can't combine these things with enormities. Repentance is more difficult. And the whole spiritual life is, is a danger and a burden. It kills heart religion. And so our, our joy, the blessedness we once knew, You know, you grow older, and with the passage of the years, there are new temptations, new opportunities of falling into sin. I didn't experience the particular sins of adolescence until I became a teenager. I didn't experience the particular sins of a husband until I was married. I didn't commit the particular sins of a father until I had daughters. I didn't commit the particular sins of prosperity until I prospered. I didn't commit the sins of old age until old age came upon me. I will not commit the sins of a dying man until my deathbed. At different stages in our lives, there are particular trespasses. We are more susceptible to them and we have to ask God, well, now help me now, Lord. You, you never leave me. Forgive me, strengthen me, assist me. And for every look at my sins, the ten looks at Jesus. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. There's a a daily consciousness of our sin. You you know different, you from me, me from you. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh until we reach the feet of Christ, the evil that we wouldn't do. Ah, we do it again. And the good that we would do are, it's not quite convenient. I'd spend an hour every morning in prayer and in reading the word of God. Oh, that I could be consistent there. The beauty of it, Putin said, his one regret about heaven was that he wouldn't be repenting any longer. So this is, Satan's particular device that he accuses us of our constant relapses into the same sins and then he says you're a, you're a hypocrite you're not a real Christian and then what are the answers that Thomas Brooks the precious remedies that he brings for the first there are many scriptures clearly show the possibility of Christians falling into the same sins. I will go on healing their backslidings. I will love them freely, Hosea 14.4. I won't give up on them, God says. Goma, Hosea's wife, many, many serious trespasses. God says, return, O black backsliding Israel and she was ransomed and she restored the prodigal son came to himself I will rise and go to my father I'll go home better to turn and turn and turn again and again than give up don't give up oh keep on keep on your left foot and then your right foot then your left foot keep, keep, keep going. Brooke says, though by grace we are freed from the dominion of sin, 
and from the damnatory power of every sin and from the love of all sin. Yet, yet, grace does not free us from the seed of any one sin. So it's possible for us to fall again and again into the same sin. If the fire is not wholly extinguished, then who'd say that it would be impossible for it to flare up and burn again and again? And ah, it is not wholly extinguished until we see him and we are like him. Again, he says, God, no, he makes a solemn covenant promise to those united to Christ that they shall not fall repeatedly into the same sin after they've been converted. He says, you can't find in the whole book of God such a promise that there's no possibility of us falling again and again into the same sins. So if God has not spoken such words, We must have no heart to believe them when Satan throws at us our falls. Can you show me a promise that God says he will preserve us forever from falling into the same sins? Brooks asks. Such a word will be life from the dead for many of us who struggle and fall. And then another precious remedy is this. The most eminent Christian leaders, men who've relapsed into the same sin, the great missionaries who neglected their children, even their wives for years, the great preachers, very great preachers, who fell into seasons of spiritual sinful discouragement or bouts of of ranting and bullying and heavy shepherding. In the Bible, Lot, he got drunk more than once. Abram lied about his wife more than once. David compounded one sin with a worse sin. Solomon, the wisest of Old Testament believers, took wife after wife after wife after wife, concubine after concubine, ad infinitum. Samson is numbered in Hebrews 11 as a man of true faith. He fell into the same sin again and again. Some of Christ's followers built palaces, rode on stallions, men carried them around on chairs. They accepted a title king of the kings of the earth. We have no Ability, men and women, no latent power within ourselves to keep standing always in every evil day, only by resting upon God and always on God and returning to God. Here I am. I'm sorry, Lord, let you down again. Please forget about today and by his wisdom and skill and Pastoring care for us, this wonderful counselor helps us through and he heals us again and again. Brooks makes an interesting difference between involuntary relapses and voluntary relapses. He's distinguishing between an, an unbeliever or a baby Christian in the first weeks and months of his Christian life with the stance of a strong Christian. And he says, involuntary relapses are when the resolution and the full bent of the heart is against sin and the soul strives with all its might against sinning. He sighs and groans and prays and cries, and yet out of his weakness, he falls back into sin because there isn't enough spiritual strength to overcome. Those are involuntary relapses. And they humble us. They must never discourage us. They must never defeat us. 
And God freely, readily will forgive involuntary relapses into sin. That's what Brooke says. Voluntary relapses are when the soul ah, tastes sin. And it is sweet. And wants to return to the flesh pots of Egypt. Where a man takes pleasure. And his pastime is sin. And such voluntary relapses reveal a man is blinded. A man is hardened. A man is ripening for judgment. And then one more thing he says about this struggle that we have with sin. No religious experience. No second blessing. No Holy Spirit baptism. No choice discovery of God's grace. No revelation of the glory of Christ. No horror at the consequence of sinning. No deep grief at the consequences of a previous fall. No aversion to sin can guarantee that we will not fall into the same sin again. We're not to believe that this beautiful experience of freshness and the renewed fear and the new power is going to remain now indefinitely. All those experiences fade and wear off and we return again to sinning. You think of Peter. Peter takes his eyes off Christ on the sea and he begins to go under again. He boasts that he will never, never that great oratorical word, never forsake you. He sees Christ's transfiguration. He hears the mightiest sermon ever preached in the upper room. And he falls asleep in the garden, tries to kill a man with a sword, and he runs off and deserts Christ. But he's restored. He's restored. Christ breaks his heart with a look. He is a personal recommission. He's filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Then he falls again. He refuses to eat with his non-Jewish brothers. And he seduces Barnabas to act as foolishly as he did. Yesterday's experience is a day late for today. That's the Christian life. You better believe it. You keep repenting. You keep on. You keep watching. You keep praying. There's no other way than that of staying close to the Son of God. But Brooke says, it's very rare that God allows his beloved children to fall into the same gross sin again. There's a law of nature, he says, that seems to be against it, let alone a law of grace. A true child of God cannot, dare not, will not frequently return to gross foolishnesses. The child has been hurt by the chastening rod of his father. Because he does. He chastens us with as much reluctance as the kindest father here would pick up a rod against his own child. Brooke sighs, oh Lord, what hard hearts we have that we can see how you strip and whip your own dear children for their relapses into sin and yet they so quickly excuse themselves and once again return to foolishness. Lastly, I want to say something about Satan's devices concerning our theological beliefs. Now, we believe that um, all men love darkness rather than light, and that there's none that seek after God, and yet... In God's grace, he's elected, he has chosen, 
many such people in the beginning to be his children and given them to his son to save. There are a company of people more than any man can number from every race and tongue and tribe and century. None deserve it. And left to themselves, none would have chosen to confess their sins and repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But in mercy, God chose millions upon millions upon millions, like the sands on the seashore. We love him because he first loved us. Yet one device of Satan is to attack those people who are standing on the threshold of faith, on the borders of the kingdom of God. They're pondering whether to follow Christ and he fires a dart at them. He makes them think, but am I elect? Have I any right to come to Christ? If I have no assurance that God has chosen me, And they're tormented by this question where they're elected. Satan says to them, if you're elected, then you'll be saved. But if not, then all you do is to no avail. So Satan works on the almost Christian, not only to doubt his election, but to conclude he's not elected. And so whatever he does or doesn't do, he can never be saved. Thomas Brooks says, I want you to be utterly confident of this. Not all the angels in heaven, not all the men on earth, not all the devils in hell can tell you you are not an elect person, unchosen by God. None of them know Neither can you know before you believe. God has not acquainted any of us without information as to who the identity of the elect might be. There is no way, in other words, before faith that any single soul can know that he's a believer or that he's elect can't look into the Lamb's book of life. The information is past finding out. We have no means of opening the heart of God and read whose names are written there. There's a story in Wales of a Christian called Cadwallader Jones. He battled with doubts as to whether God had chosen him or not. One night he had a glorious dream a magnificent heavenly throne room was before him, a golden plinth was at the center, and a huge leather-bound book was there, and it contained a vast list of names, men and women, letters of gold, the Lamb's Book of Life. So he goes up, and he turns the pages, and uh, Jay, and he comes to, Cadwallader Jones. And to his immense joy, he finds his name there. He wakes the next morning. Oh, he's a happy bunny. And he walks on air that morning. He's elect. And then at 11 o'clock, the doorbell rings and he opens it and he sees the young man standing there. Can I help you? He says, the young man says, Mr. Cadwallader Jones. Yes, he says. Well, remember 40 years ago, you had a younger brother and he emigrated to Australia. Yes, indeed I do. Uh, I've lost touch with him. Well, he says, I'm his son. And I told him I was visiting Wales and um, he said, oh, you must look out for my brother, Cadwallader. Oh, come in, come in. What's your name, he said. Young man hesitated. He said, my father loved your name so much that he called me Cadwallader. (laughs) And immediately that old man's peace and joy 
that he'd received from the dream evaporated. Which of them, he or the young man, was the Cadwallader whose name was in the book of life. I'm saying dreams and hunches and visions and the strongest of feelings are all in vain to give us assurance of our election. They all wax and wane. But the search to obtain assurance before we venture our trust in Christ is utterly futile. We do not know before faith in Jesus. We know in faith because our faith in Christ is the sign of our election. Or we can say it like this. Christ is the sign of our election. If I have him as my Lord and Savior, then I know I was chosen. I was chosen before the foundation of the world. So what is my warrant to come to Christ? What right do you or I have to believe right into Jesus Christ? Did we come because we were certain that we were elect? Did any single soul ever come because he or she knew before conversion that he or she was an elect person? We came because we were invited to come. We came because there is a universal offer of God's gospel. We came because to every sinner of mankind, to every such soul, God is saying, come, please come, turn, repent, believe on my son, all you who labor and are heavy laden. All of us stand at this moment within the orbit of the offer that God makes for his son to be our teacher, to be the lamb of God, to take away our sin, to be the king who will protect us forever and ever. He's brought you here to this conference these days to hear this good news, that Jesus lives, Jesus is with us, that he's moving the aisle and he's sitting next to you and he's nudging you, he's touching your conscience, he's digging his elbow into your ribs. Are you listening now? He is saying he's willing to save you today. Doesn't matter who you are. Didn't matter. Doesn't matter where you spent last week. It doesn't matter where you spent last night. You and I have all sorts of disabilities, all sorts of disadvantages, all sorts of of excuses. Why it's the wrong time just now. I'm in the wrong conference for evangelism. We are so sinful. We are so hypocritical. We are so unconvicted. We are unprepared. We are so unusual. Every sinner finds some point at which by his own uniqueness he feels disqualified from coming to Christ. We may not do that. The only right given to us is to obey the sincere invitation of God. If we but come to Christ, we shall have life. The only right we have is to obey the God who is speaking to us and commanding us and beseeching us to come to Christ just as we are without any confidence in anything else today his mercy is here it's saying you come now you come we don't know whether we are elect but we know we are invited we know we are bidden to come commanded to turn from sitting on the fence our unbelief to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given us this warrant to come now 
just as we are. If today you understand the most elementary gospel invitation, that we deserve eternal death because we are sinners, but Jesus Christ, because he loved us, became the Lamb of God and made atonement and obtained forgiveness and bought everlasting life for us. Well, how can you stay away? Doesn't matter how young you are or how old we are. It's not too soon, it's not too late. Do you have an ever-dying soul? Yes. Are you a sinner? Yes. Have you lived your life so far without Jesus Christ? Without God? Without hope? Yes. You are a person with a warrant. To come now to him who invites you. I make a distinction between two great words. My Christ is offered to everyone. My Christ is promised to those who put their trust in him. I'm not promising all of you today salvation and eternal life. But I do say. To every one of you, there's a living Savior that's brought me with this message and brought you to this conference. And he's visiting us in love. He has not come to judge this group. He has not come to blame. He has not only come to seek. It is to save that he's come. And when we call him Savior, we call him by his name. He is ready and he is willing and desirous to become your personal savior. I cannot promise him to you all. I cannot guarantee that none of you will end in hell. But I say to everyone whose trust is in Christ that he, he's begun a good work in you. And he will perform it until the day of Christ. Oh, love that will not let us go. The angels in heaven are happier than we are, but they're not more secure than we are. If your faith is as thin as a spider's thread, it can lift you across the bottomless pit over the lake of fire and it can set you down at the feet of Jesus, your welcoming Savior with exceeding joy. No matter how hesitant you are, no matter how unprepared, how ignorant, if your faith is in the King of love, the Lamb of God, I can promise you eternal salvation. I'm not promising to all of you, but I'm offering his willingness to come into your life today, to enter your life, to keep you by his power until we meet at his feet. From conversion to glory. It is an indestructible salvation. It is an infrangible salvation. Invulnerable, shatterproof unyielding to all the powers of hell when they dress themselves in their most dreadful forms of rage and malice. They're unsuccessful because Jesus Christ, the superior power and guardian grace, he will hold me fast. I don't know who the elect are. I don't know if you're elect. You don't know if you're elect. But you know God has brought you here. And you are invited this moment to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's a genuine invitation. 
It's sincere, a personal salvation. To all of you who are listening to this, there's, there's no mystery here. This is an unembarrassed divine offer. You, you're not allowed to say, but I want to know more. I need to know more. Do you know you're a sinner? And do you know there's a great living Savior who rose from the dead? And he visits where two or three gather in his name and he comes with his arms outstretched to welcome you, to embrace you. Don't dabble with your soul's redemption. Don't ask about the secret things of God. But oh, I don't know if I'm elect. No one knows if he or she is elect. You know the wonderful grace God has shown to hear again of the graciousness and the patience and the forgiveness and the mercy and the love that's in this tremendous person, God the Son. That's what God has done. He's brought you here. Don't go on defying him now. 